Hello and welcome to episode 91 of Command Space on 5x5. My name is Mike Hurley and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Russ Frushdick. Hi Russ. Hi there, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, thank you for being here today. Russ, what do you like to be known for? Oh my gosh, we're starting off strong, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Uh, go big. So I uh, I would say I like to be known... Uh, I like, the, you know, if people think I'm funny mm-hmm. um, and interesting and that I uh, provide interesting insight. Uh, and then I would say the secondary thing would be that I'm honest. And uh, I've found that that can piss some people off, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to game reviews. But... Uh, you know, that sort of extends through my entire life is that I try to be honest wherever possible. So you mentioned game reviews. Um, What's the sort of thing that people would recognize you from on the internet? Um, so I've done a few uh, game reviews most recently for Polygon. Um, I think the most recent review that I wrote was for Metal Gear Solid. Uh, uh, I'm blanking on the name now. Ground Zeroes. Uh, so Metal Gear Solid Five Ground Zeroes. Um, I also um, do a podcast for Polygon known as The Besties, which is now a monthly podcast. And um, I also do, I manage uh, the video for Polygon, so you might see me in a variety of random videos on Polygon. So where does your background come with video games? How long have you been playing games? Uh, I started, uh, I remember my first video game experience was with the Intellivision. I don't think I ever played it, but I do remember that my father bought an Intellivision. I remember seeing it in the house uh, and thought it was interesting, but like I was too young to sort of get it. And then where I sort of got involved was the NES, the original NES coming out. And I have very vivid memories of uh, playing the original Super Mario Brothers. And that, I would say, kicked off sort of the love affair, if you will, with video games. Uh, I haven't really gone back since. Where have you always fallen on the side of the console wars, especially when growing up? Were you a Nintendo kid? Uh, I was a Nintendo kid. Um, I don't think I was particularly fervent ever, and I, I, I remain like very uh, more more neutral than ever, I would say. Um, but I definitely had uh, Nintendo, original Nintendo and Super Nintendo and N64. I never had an original PlayStation uh, I did have a Genesis, which I got on the cheap many years after the Genesis launched. Um, but yeah, it just wasn't, uh, I don't know. I, I, I never like was in the schoolyard or whatever, uh, making those fights saying that my Aladdin is better than your Aladdin. <laughs> That's a very specific like reference. People, that I, quite people like. Know, I feel like Aladdin was the tipping point where uh-huh. people would like defend their own version of Aladdin. Uh, and it's pretty uh, remarkable how strong people felt back then. So did, when you were growing up, did you think that you wanted a career in video games in some way? Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, not really. I, I never thought it was a real like possibility. Um, you know, my options were like, what was I going to do? Go into game testing or something? It, like uh, Coming at it from the media side, never really occurred to me seriously um, until I was probably like 17 or 18. I started considering it. Um, And uh, I got some really good guidance then from a a gentleman named George Jones who still works in the industry. Um, He was working for an AOL uh, video game like ARM at the time. 
Um, and I sent him some questions about the job and like any recommendations and he definitely helped me. But that was really the first time that uh, it even occurred to me that it was an option. Um, so, you know, it was just, uh, you know, before that it was just a pastime for me. Was sending that email like a turning point? Uh, I would say it was a bigger turn more, uh, turning point for me. I mean, that email gave me some more insight and some like recommendations. The bigger turning point for me, I don't know, for whatever reason, I have a very vivid memory of being uh, in my freshman year of college. And I was I went to school, uh, Emerson College in, in Boston, Massachusetts. And then I was crossing the uh, commons, which is sort of the public park in Boston. And it was like a weird lightning bolt moment where I was like, you know what? I could definitely give this a shot. Like I could either get a job at Starbucks working as a barista or I could try writing freelance for a website. So um, out of the blue, like literally I knew no one, but out of the blue I just emailed um, this company called uh, UGO, which is currently no longer in existence, which is a bit sad, but... uh, and asked them if they were looking for interns. I was about to wrap up my freshman year and knew that my summer was going to be open and I wanted to see if they would take me on as an intern. And they, it had never even occurred to them to have interns. Um, it was like a f- totally foreign idea to them. But uh, I went and met with them. They were based in New York City. And uh, they seemed open to the idea. So I started interning for them. And then when I would go back to school, I'd freelance write for them. Uh, for just a little bit of money and, you know, free video games, which was a definite motivator when I was in college. Mm-hmm. And uh, that sort of just started me on this crazy career path. I, I would say that I'm extraordinarily lucky in the sense that w- when I started was uh, just before the blogging boom and the, like, personal publication boom, which is to say, um, you know, right now if you were to like blind email a website that covers video games, you know, good luck. Like, uh, hey, have you ever thought about interns? <laughs> right. So uh, I definitely came in at a very ideal time uh, for someone starting out. And uh, so I definitely appreciate how lucky I was there. But it's uh, it's been good ever since. Where did you go after UGO? Did you work for them on a more full-time capacity or did... did yeah, um, so I, I freelanced for them uh, throughout college. And then when I graduated, they were kind enough to hire me full-time. Uh, and uh, after a couple years there, I became the games editor there. I was at UGO for about three and a half or four years full-time, give or take. And then I went straight on to uh, MTV. Uh, running the uh, MTV multiplayer blog, which was started by a very talented uh, man named Steven Totillo. Um, so I took over the reins after he departed. Um, and so I was at MTV for two years. And then we'll talk about Polygon in a minute, but I assume from MTV you went to Polygon? I went, uh, yeah, from MTV to Polygon. There was actually a stretch of uh, about three months where I was doing freelance, but the, um, <clears throat> the jump from Poly- uh, MTV to Polygon was... Uh, almost immediate because uh, the uh, I think like two days after I left MTV or maybe the day I left MTV, uh, I got an an IM from uh, Chris Grant and Justin McElroy 
saying, hey, we might have something we could talk to you about. <laughs> hey, so, you know, we, have, we have this little thing we <laughs> might be working on. <laughs> so it occurs to me, like, apart from being lucky when I started the video games industry, it occurs to me that, like, the fact that I've been consistently employed in this industry for uh, 10 years, or more than 10 years at this point, is, like, staggeringly lucky. And it's just been, like, stars aligning left and right for me. Aside from blind luck, do you think there's anything else? Like, are there any sort of key things that you've learned in your career that have helped you stay in work for 10 years? Sure. Um, I try to say no as little as possible. Even if it's stuff that I'm, like, not sure I want to do, whether it's a game review or an event to cover or um, just something that seems a little off, I definitely try to just, like, keep a very open mind. Um, And... That, you know, includes like, you know, doing freelance work for, you know, sites that I might not have known about in that three month span and just sort of taking a lot of chances. I would say, you know, every time you say no, that closes a door almost usually permanently with the person that you're interacting with. So uh, just trying to say yes a lot. Um, And that actually extends to some of the recent stuff I've done on Fox Business, which is uh, some uh, sort of, um, I'm not a financial expert at all, but I do know technology and video game space really well. So I've done a lot of sort of on-air reporting about like the video game and technology space. And it was something that I initially came to and was very skeptical, like, oh, is this going to be a right fit for me? And um, it worked out. But like it's nerve wracking, like it's national TV and stressful, but, you know, eventually you find that groove. And, and you know what, if you try something once and it's bad for you, you just stop. So I try to say yes as often as possible. Do you find that that has a, a negative effect on your schedule? Um, I also, for whatever reason, I like, I think the way I structure my days and my weeks, uh, it's very intentional. It's very... Um, uh, focused on making sure that I don't kill myself uh, from like working like 14, 16 hour days. Obviously, there are those weeks where you just have to, you know, whether it's E3 or whether there's a console launch or whether there's other big things going on, there are those weeks where you're just going to go nuts and not get much sleep and not be home very often. But uh, I'm definitely someone that works a lot better when I'm able to decompress by the end of the day. So I, really try hard to make sure that's a priority for me. You've openly mentioned in the past, like even in your Twitter bio, that you're colorblind. <laughs> does that have an effect on the way that you play and approach games? Uh, it definitely does. Uh, certain games I cannot play at all, like right. physically incapable of playing. Uh, it's not as often as you'd think. Um, a game that jumps to mind that I can't play is a game called Super Puzzle Fighter from Capcom. Uh, that is a gem matching game that sort of involves fighting characters. And the gems are so finely tuned to my colorblindness <laughs> that I really cannot tell the difference between most of them. Um, so you look but, like you're always winning, but actually you're always Yeah, losing. no, I basically, <laughs> yeah, every board looks like I'm in the pink and then it's absolute disaster. Um, no, uh, these days, um, most designers are very aware of colorblindness. It is, not to put on an advocacy hat, but it is 9% of males suffer from it, which is a pretty serious number, especially when you consider, like, for hardcore games at least, the uh, ratio of men to women playing. 
Um, so a lot of developers uh, account for it, whether it's by changing the palette a bit or by including patterns. So a game like Bejeweled is obviously not a problem because all the gems have unique shapes to them. How far into your life did you realize you were colorblind? Uh, I was, I believe, about eight or nine years old. Um, I went to the pediatrician with my dad. And they have a very specific test where they hand you a book. It's got a lot of circles in it. And the whole idea is that you there's like a bunch of like tiny circles in a larger circle in the idea is that you can see a number oh, I've seen in this. those circles. Yes. Yeah, I've seen this. You, you can actually take the test online if you're worried that you are colorblind. Uh, you just Google colorblind test, they'll pull up. And um, so those, they just gave me that test. And, uh, you know, it was probably the fastest diagnosis the doctor had ever given because I couldn't see a single number in there. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, I, I, I was uh, pretty upset. I remember vividly my father saying... Oh, my friend is colorblind. My like, you know, middle-aged, grown-up friend is colorblind. If you want him to talk to you about it, and I remember crying my eyes out at that. <laughs> it was like, oh, that's what I have. Forty years uh, ahead, I'm still going to be dealing with this. So, I've I've managed to uh, work around that issue, and uh, I know not to go shopping alone anymore. So, lesson learned. <laughs> now, I want to talk to you uh, about Polygon and and how you sort of it came into it and the work that you do there but before i do that i just want to take a very quick break to thank our sponsor for this week's episode and that is the fine folks over at squarespace who are the all-in-one platform that make it fast and easy to create your own professional website for a free trial and 10 percent off visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code known for that's k-n-o-w-n-f-o-r at checkout a better web starts with your website let me tell you why I love Squarespace. It's really simple and really easy to get a blog up and running. Let's say you're listening to this show and you decide that you want to start your own video game blog to get your experience to be super successful in the video game industry like Russ is. Well, you can do just log on to Squarespace, try out their free trial, and you can take a look at their beautiful templates and you can set a site up really, really easily. They have fantastic design throughout their apps, throughout the backend system, as well as the fantastic templates too. Everything is drag and drop when you're building your pages on Squarespace, so you can see exactly how your page is going to look as you are building it. If you have any issues or you get stuck at all, they have 24-7 support. They have live chat, they have email support, and they also are very active on Twitter. They have fantastic message boards and forums and all of that sort of stuff and knowledge base articles. And they have support teams based in New York City and Dublin to make sure they give you that 24-7 support. Squarespace plans start at $8 a month and they include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. All Squarespace sites feature responsive design and they all have the option for a Squarespace commerce functionality to be enabled so you can start selling physical or digital goods online. Every single site with Squarespace comes with the ability to add an online store. You can try out Squarespace for free today you can start a trial you don't need any credit card to do this and you can start building a website straight away when you decide to sign up for squarespace make sure that you use the offer code known for at checkout it's going to get you 10 percent off your first purchase and it will show your support for command space thanks so much to squarespace for supporting five by five and this show with squarespace a better web starts with your website so russ what is your role now over at polygon you mentioned executive producer is kind of the, the the role that you take what does that entail on a daily basis sure so um i basically manage uh the video department the video efforts for the site 
Um, what that entails is um, basically I uh, work with all the other departments, whether it's reviews or features or news, um, and uh, sort of come up with good video solutions, good video options for covering events, covering a feature, doing a video review. Um, you know, we have, you know, as everyone does, limited resources in terms of where we, we can't obviously do a video review for every video game that comes out or cover every single news event that comes out. So um, it's sort of uh, me uh, working with the other department heads to just determine where our, use, our resources are best spent. Um, in addition to ensuring that the level of quality uh, for our video remains high. And um, yeah, so uh, we also do... Uh, the video department on its own does uh, various video features. We've done um, a series called The Cooperatives, which is sort of a humorous uh, op-ed uh, series, and uh, a series called Today I Played. So we have a, n a number of uh, sort of video uh, efforts going on at one time, and I guess I'm sort of the uh, computer brain that has to remember them all and make sure none of them collide horribly with one another. Was this what you joined Polygon to do as your role evolved over time at the site? Yeah, it actually wasn't. Um, I joined Polygon to, uh, the primary focus was uh, sort of twofold. Uh, one was covering mobile games and the other one was covering uh, various uh, reviews and, and stuff like that where I felt my expertise, like I knew a lot of it, like a Call of Duty game because I play the most Call of Duty out of anyone at Polygon. So, for example, I would just jump in and pinch hit with reviews. Um, I've moved away from, I've still, you know, obviously still play mobile games, and, and uh, but I've moved away from that coverage. And actually, to be honest, Polygon has, on the whole, and part of the reason is it's a very different mobile space than it was when I joined. Um, mobile games, when I joined, were a much... I would say much more exciting area. Um, it was a bit more like the Wild West. There was many more frequent, exciting releases that weren't based around free-to-play city yeah. building or yeah. candy matching, um, which isn't to slight mobile games because there are some tremendous, really excellent mobile games that are coming out on a daily and weekly basis. Um, but from our priorities, we just the impression that we got is that People like mobile recommendations, but more often than not, people aren't going to read a 500 or 800 word review of a mobile game. They're just going to spend a dollar on the App Store and give it a shot. Um, or, you know, just like, oh, they see a tweet and that's all they need. So we found that full-on coverage of mobile games just wasn't getting a huge amount of attention. I did a, a weekly uh, video series called Mobile Watchlist for close to a year and, um, you know, there was definitely a very loyal fan base, but it never grew beyond that just because even though mobile games have a broad audience, that broad audience doesn't really consume content about those games. They just want to play the games. So uh, because of that, I moved away from mobile and, uh, you know, it was um, seen that there was a distinct need on the video side to have more of like a managing role to make sure that everything works smoothly and we were making smart decisions so um, I was brought in for that, uh, and uh, that's sort of where my role shifted. That was about a year and a half ago. 
I think it makes sense, and I, I like the way that you guys have changed the way that you cover mobile games because, like before, it was mobile games are mobile games, and there's something different. But now it's like if a game is really good, it just gets the same sort of coverage as any game would get, like three, sure. for example, right? It, sh- yeah. it was an excellent game, so it kind of was everywhere. Yeah, you know? uh, I would also say part of that is. Um, Threes is not an example of this, but a lot of the indie developers these days are obviously going multi-platform given how easy it is to bring a game to Mac and PC and mobile. Um, so it does feel weird to sort of uh, silo off the efforts of um, an indie developer just as like, oh, this is just a mobile game. Exactly. I really love the, the stuff that, that you guys are doing and all of Vox, really. I think that Vox Media is kind of pioneering the way that video is done online. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's really interesting to watch. Like, I'm a big fan of like Polygon Live and stuff. And especially with the reviews, like I struggle to read really long reviews of products sure. and games. Like I just, I find them interesting, but I struggle to keep interest. But I can watch your reviews and get everything that I need out of it. So I really like mm-hmm. them for that. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, Adam Berenblatt is based in San Francisco and he cuts the vast majority of the video reviews for Polygon. And um, it was him working with the rest of our video team that sort of nailed the style and the flow, as well as the reviews team, who obviously reviews the games, but also writes the VO scripts um, to uh, ensure that those reviews are not only concise uh, and digestible, but also very, uh, you know, listenable and watchable and uh, engaging. So um, thank you, though. That's that's really great to hear. So you mentioned that you have a really good structure for the way that you manage your day. What does that look like for you? Um, you mean like a day-to-day basis or how I how I manage it all? I guess a bit of both. Like what, <laughs> what, is, what is a day in the life of Russ? Uh, it depends. It's, it's strange. So like um, Monday is a meeting day. Uh, every Monday I have like a crap load of meetings, which is just the nature of working with a lot of different departments. Um, I'm just in meetings all day. Uh, But the rest of the week, you know, it'll vary depending on whether there's a shoot going on that day or whether I have to, like, for example, today I'm actually working from home because I'm reviewing uh, Trials Fusion, which is the next uh, Trials game from Ubisoft. Um, And um, so it really just depends. Uh, And it's weird because I don't keep like a hard calendar. Uh, None of this is written down. I think I just have a, a pretty good sense of like everything that's going on and I just like adjust and make uh, scheduled decisions accordingly. Um, but it's not like a system that I could like write down and like recommend to people, Yeah, uh, which is unfortunately not very helpful, but <laughs> yeah. Is playing video games all day as fun as it sounds? Like when uh, you're reviewing a game, is it, no. is it actually fun? Uh, parts can be fun. If it's a good game, it certainly can be fun. Uh, I was actually talking to Chris Plant, another uh, worker uh, at uh, Polygon, another writer, and uh, I was saying to him yesterday, um, the idea of being a game reviewer full-time, like what Arthur and Phil Kohler and uh, Danielle Reindow do excellently for us um, at Polygon, is horrifying to me. I would absolutely, absolutely hate it because 80 to 90% of the time, you're playing a game that you really aren't necessarily like excited about playing you're just like that's your job um and so that's like a bad scenario another bad scenario is let's say you've been waiting for a game let's say you're a big zelda fan 
you've been waiting for the next Zelda game for three years. Let's say you get the next, you know, the code for the Zelda game a day before the embargo lifts or two days before the embargo lifts. Suddenly you have to rush through right. the game and it takes a lot of the magic out of it, which is, which is sad. I mean, a lot of publishers are pretty good about sending code early, but, um, you know, I like doing reviews here and there, but on the whole, um, it is not my preferred way to digest and experience games just because um, it's generally very time constrained and, and turns something that I find very relaxing and enjoyable into work. Um, so I don't want to sound like I'm complaining about playing games for review or what have you. I'm certainly not. But, you know, it's one of those like too much of a good thing situations where you know if you eat enough red vines you'll probably not dig red vines too much anymore do you play games to completion for review uh yes i mean it's you know for example i didn't review gta but if i had reviewed gta would i have needed to find every hidden package (laughs) and all that like there's obviously degrees to it it's also a little more complex i don't do sports games but uh for our sports game reviewers yeah like How what is go? the end of a sports game sure yeah. but when it comes to obviously an rpg or you know an adventure game or i would say most games that have a very clear ending when the credits roll what have you that's certainly something that we do when we're reviewing games what's it what's the feeling like when you submit a score for a game especially if it's one that maybe is expected to score well and you score it low Sure. Because there's Uh, a lot of opinion around this sort of stuff, isn't there? Yes. So um, our process actually has us not submitting scores. The way the the Polygon Review System works, and this is, uh, you know, sort of a collaborative effort uh, run uh, primarily by Arthur Geese, who's the reviews editor. Um, So I'll submit a draft of the written review. It won't have a score on it. Uh, Whoever edits the piece, whether it's Arthur or Phil or Danielle, will um, send, you know, potential edits, small changes that they would recommend that I make. Once the uh, draft is pretty much finalized, they'll come to me and say, okay, so I think this review reads like a, and they'll give it a score. It reads like a seven. And more often than not, I would say 99% of the time, my expected score in my brain is going to be pretty close to that maybe a point or a a half point off Um, but the idea is what we want to make sure is that the text reads like we're intending it to rather than sort of starting with a score and then writing to that you know score Um, we um, want to make sure that like if someone were to read it when they got to the end of the review they shouldn't be surprised by the score it shouldn't be like this game is amazing. Oh, my God. Four out of ten. <laughs> yeah. So, That's actually quite an interesting process. Yeah. Just, yeah, it seems to work quite well. So you were uh, and you are a founding member of Polygon. Um, and you mentioned that you kind of w- was brought in quite early when you w- were sort of looking at a career change. What brought you to Vox to work on Polygon? Like, what was it about this project that you felt like you wanted to be involved in? Um, it sounded... Uh, to be honest, too good to be true, which was to say at a time when companies, media companies, were n- really like laying people off en masse um, or hiring people fresh out of college to like run sites because they were so much cheaper. Um, the impression that I got from Vox, and that remains true to this day, is that their chief concern was hiring uh, people 
that have a lot of experience, that know how to make quality content, um, and that they wanted to become this really premium, high-quality media company. Um, and again, like that sounded too good to be true, and I was not expecting them to sort of come through as much as they have. Um, in the back of my head, I'm like, well, if it's bullshit, in, you know, two years, I'll just look for a new job. Like, they're not going to fire me two year, you know, before two years. They're definitely going to give this site a chance. Um, but it turns out, like, it was, you know, everything that they said about what their goals were and what they're trying to create uh, has been totally true. And it, I, again, feel very lucky because these media, this kind of media company is such a rare commodity these days yeah. that if, for whatever reason, I don't see this happening. But for whatever reason, if I had to leave or if Vox folded, I have no idea what company would give the sort of support that that, this, uh, that Vox Media has given to the editorial teams there. You've been um, spoiled. We absolutely 100% been spoiled, and um, it's been great. I, I really couldn't speak more highly about them. There's no gun to my head. As I said, I'm working from home, so there's no way they can threaten me. <laughs> um, but it, it's been really tremendous. Unless you uh, live in the office. Yeah, I, I, that's true. I might have a cubicle and a little bed underneath my desk. No, no. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been terrific. Typically on this show, I tend to, to talk to journalists and bloggers that work in more of the technology and gadget side. Mm-hmm. How do you feel that these two worlds compare and contrast? Um, well, it's interesting because obviously I work closely with all the Verge guys, uh, and the Verge is obviously very tied into the world of technology and gadgets. Um I do some broader technology coverage, so I definitely see where the intersects are. Um, you know, when it comes to new hardware, whether it's a, a new gaming console like the Xbox or uh, a new iPad that runs like better games, uh, it's clear where those intersects are. You know, people are able to, you know, use a device for watching movies or listening to music, but also play games from Epic that have like insane graphics and look amazing or, or super fun. Um, but it is also very peculiar because I have sort of a remove from it because when I look at uh, a show like CES, for example, um, I'm like, okay, so like here's 60, you know, uh, digital cameras standing next to each other. Do I have any interest as to like which one is minutely better than the other one? No, not necessarily. But... To, on the same level, you know, someone could look at Battlefield and Call of Duty and say the same thing. It's like, oh, they're shooting games, whatever. They're the same thing. Whereas I could spend a half hour detailing a long list of why they're different. So it's really just, you know, I feel like I have a pretty broad knowledge of technology and the technology space. But there's always those people that know their niche, niches better than anyone else. And um, I definitely think The Verge has many, many of those. I know that we on Polygon have, you know, our JRPG expert, our sports expert, what have you. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, nooks and crannies, basically, and they all have to be filled. Um, and there's always someone that knows way more about something than you do, generally. Sitting in between these two worlds at times, do you think that the relationships between the press and the companies that they cover are different in the video game world to the technology space? Um, I, To be honest, I haven't had 
as much technology. Like I have media contacts at you know big technology compo- uh, companies, um, uh, and in those instances, it's pretty similar. Um, the fact of the matter is, it is it's a curious relationship that I think a lot of readers don't really understand because you know neither one could really exist without the other, which is to say. You know, the reason PR people have jobs is because they interact with media people and, you know, in their ideal world, the media people write about their products in a positive light. And the media people, on the other hand, let's say there were no technology or video game PR people, uh, we'd sort of be in a state where we're reviewing games, you know, by going to the store and buying them after they released. And then suddenly, you know, we're not able to sort of give people that level of insight before these games are released. Um, which isn't to say like we're driven by just getting free games from companies, but there is a benefit to, you know, that level of insight, the, the stories that we're able to put together, a lot of the, you know, deeper features and stuff like that would not exist were it not for companies being open to the idea of letting us into their offices or, um, letting us interview their people. And sometimes they're not thrilled with the outcome and sometimes they're very happy with the outcome, um, it's it's a very tricky relationship uh, and a very narrow line you walk because obviously, you know, you do want to be uh, polite and friendly with these people, but you also need to keep in mind, like, you have a job. You, yeah, I, as I mentioned earlier, honesty is one of the most important things to me, especially when it comes to what I'm writing or what I'm saying on video. And even if it means you know, mucking up a relationship that I've had for 10 years with, a, you know, a PR person, I'd rather be honest. Now, if it's a relationship that's gone that long, one would hope that they would have the foresight to say, hey, maybe, you know, don't stop talking to Russ just because he didn't like this one game. But, uh, you know, it's happened. Uh, people uh, can take this stuff very personally um, or, you know, potentially lose their jobs over, you know, a swath of negative reviews of a game that they were repping. Um, It's, it's, it's weird. Uh, And I think a lot of people don't see that side, but it's just sort of, um, you know, I try to make sure that number one priority is just being honest with the readers because that's all I really can do. Is there any differences that you see between the communities? Like obviously the gaming community, like of readers, viewers, uh, listeners and the tech communities are very passionate about the things that they enjoy, the companies that they uh, champion. Yeah. From my sort of way that I look at things, it, it definitely seems like the gaming community is more sort of uh, strongly opinionated about their companies than maybe people who enjoy smartphones. Is that the case that you've seen, or do you think that there are actually quite a lot I, of similarities? I have read the comments on Verge articles about a new Android device or a new Apple device, <laughs> and they are not exactly uh, staid and no, calm. No. Um, I would agree that um, the same level of vitriol can can come from a video game article, um, especially right now. Um, there's definitely been a renewed console war sense with these new consoles coming out. Um, and I tend to not get bothered by any of that stuff. I know a lot of people take comments and tweets and stuff like that very personally i never do which i've recently found is sort of a rarity that i can distance myself from that um and part of the reason that i never do is because it boils down to this in my opinion people are justifying or defending their investment 
they yes. went out and they spent $400. They want to know in their heart of hearts that they did not make the wrong choice. Now, I'm not saying that one of them, the Xbox or the PS4, is a wrong, is the wrong choice. But, you know, if a game comes out that's like an exclusive PS4 and Xbox title and it gets a bad review, suddenly they feel like the need to jump in there and say, this, this review doesn't know what it's talking about. And a lot of that, I, I honestly believe, comes from that sensitivity that's like, oh, maybe, you know, you know, it wasn't all, you know, my investment wasn't exactly the best. Um, that's just me theorizing. That's not a scientific study or anything like that. But, um, you know, uh, to answer your question, I see vitriol on, on just about any side when it comes to large investments. I'm sure when it comes, you know, I don't, Cost. I'm not a big car guy, yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> I'm not a big car guy, but uh, for cars, you know, whether it's a V8 or a V6, whatever. You're really trying, uh, people, you? <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, I, I watch a little Top Gear, that's the extent. But, um, you know, people feel very strongly because they want to make sure they're, you know, 50,000 or 50,000 quid uh, investment was worth it. So, Thanks. sure, I'm trying for you guys. <laughs> you mentioned about, like, negative comments and stuff that you're able to just deal with them do you think this comes from the experience the amount of time you've been in the industry that as it's ramped up you've your way of coping with it has changed so like previously before like when you started out there wasn't twitter so there was this amount of of negative comment and then as it's become more and more you've just scaled to deal with it um you you mean my sort of remove my not being bothered by it yeah uh, so I thought that for a while it was just because I've been in the industry for so long and I don't think that's actually it because I know many, many very talented people that work in this industry and that stuff uh, gets to them even to this day, uh, very strongly. I mean, it's, it's reasonable. It's a defense mechanism. Someone is attacking you or your writing or your work and most people, uh, react in the way that's like, I'm going to take offense to this. I'm going to address it and respond to this person um, and that seems to be the norm more than my attitude, which is to say, like, okay, I just reviewed a game. The embargo, does, uh, the game doesn't come out for another two days. People are saying I'm an idiot. But I know for 100% certainty that none of these people that are commenting have actually played the game. So what do I care? Um, so that's, again, I, I think I'm a, a bit of an oddity uh, when it comes to that sort of analytical remove from uh, caring what people say. Uh, I will say, though, I you know appreciate positive comments or thoughtful, even if it's negative, like a thoughtful critique, I'm like very uh, interested and in, uh, engaged in getting. Like I'll respond to those. Uh, but it's if it comes to like, oh, you're dumb because whatever, it's some nonsense reason about why I don't, uh, you know, I was wrong about whether pixel shaders were used properly in this game. Um, I, yeah, that stuff doesn't get to me at all, but again, I'm a rarity. What are the things that you're working on right now that you're excited about, whether it's a review or you've got some projects coming up, like for as much as you can say? Yeah. Uh, well, I would say, um, you know, people might not know it, but the amount of preparation that has to go into E3, uh, we're about two months out, uh, right now. And, uh, it's a staggering effort not only for game companies but for uh game uh you know media companies uh covering e3 you know we send just about everyone on our staff so that's uh you know well over 20 editorial people and um 
it's uh, it's an endeavor. Uh, we've got a booth on the show floor. We've you know we're figuring out live uh, video solutions from right. the show floor, stuff like that. Um, it sounds a little dull when I say it that way because it's like a lot of logistics, but it really, I mean, E3 is very exciting. Um, there was a year when um, they held E3 uh, in Santa Monica, which is a little bit outside of uh, downtown LA. And it was like a very toned down, quiet. It was just like going from hotel room to hotel room. And it was the easiest E3 I've ever covered because there's no crowds. It's just like quiet and chill and like, you can hear what people are saying, but there's no spectacle to it. And at least once a year, I feel like the games industry needs some spectacle. Yeah. Uh, Is that the one when they kind pop. of locked it down to the public? Um, uh, you mean like kept the public out? Yeah. Well, technically, the public's not invited anyway, although it's <laughs> incredibly easy to get into E3 if you really want to. Uh, at least it was uh, many years ago. Um uh, but yeah, that year in particular, uh, because there was no real show floor, there was, but it was a bit of a joke, um, and that it was mostly just hotel rooms. You really had to like go to each company individually and like set up appointments. Right. So the public really would have like showed up at like a Hilton hotel, stood in the lobby, lobby <laughs> and just been like, "Hey, free coffee." <laughs> <laughs> Can I see a video? Okay. No, <laughs> yeah. So is that what should we be keeping an eye on that you're working on that Polygon's working on? Like, is keep an eye on the E3 stuff? Have you got any exciting video stuff that you've got coming? Uh, yeah, we're actually in the process of piloting some new video series. Uh, I think it's a little too early to talk about them just yet, unfortunately. Um, but uh, we are um, definitely, we have a lot of exciting stuff coming down the pipe. Uh, it's... I mean, that's the nature of this industry and the nature of journalism in general is that uh, the second you sort of stagnate and you feel like, you know, you're doing the same thing for too long, that's when people start tuning out. And we want to make sure that we don't fall into that. And uh, we love the fact that people have been uh, so cool with us embracing what we're doing and the format and how our site looks and all that stuff. And we want to make sure that we don't let those people down. So... Hopefully we don't. Hopefully we're not. And um, we definitely have some very, very cool stuff coming up in the near future. Uh, so, yeah, you can stay tuned for that. And finally, what games are you excited about right now? Um, so it's a bit weird, but the game that I'm like most looking forward to just like spending a ton of time with this year is um, uh, Binding of Isaac on Vita. <laughs> They're re-releasing Binding of Isaac, which is a tremendously good PC game. Uh but with uh, 16-bit graphics and on a mobile device on the Vita. And that just seems like a dream Vita game for me because it's randomly generated and does all sorts of cool stuff. Um, I'm also really excited. Uh, I'm going to get pilloried for this, I'm sure, but I don't actually have a gaming PC at home. I just have a Mac. And I'm very excited that a game called Nuclear Throne just got released on uh, Mac. So I'm looking forward to playing that. I'll probably do that later today. <laughs> That's the new uh, Vlambeer game, right? Vlambeer game, correct, yes. Awesome. Yeah, I've I've got the tab open, ready to purchase. <laughs> I think it's a safe investment. Yeah, I'm looking really looking forward to it. So, Russ, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to to join me today. Where can people find you? Where are you on the internet? Sure. Uh, I guess the best place would probably be on Twitter. I'm just at Russ Frustic. Um, that's Russ R U S S Frustic F as in Frank R U S H T as in Tom I C K. 
Uh, chances are, if you try to spell my name and get it like one letter off, you'll still find me because I'm the only Russ Frostick on the planet. It's kind of cool that way. You that was such a prepared way of spelling out your surname. Oh, it's almost like I've done it fifty thousand times in my entire life. <laughs> If you want to find me online, I am on Twitter. I am at iMike, I-M-Y-K-E. If you want to find the show notes for today's show, go to 5x5.tv slash C-M-D-S-P-A-C-E slash 91. Thank you again to Russ for joining me, and thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Command Space. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, bye-bye.